Well, next week we're going to begin a new expositional series through uh, the Gospel of John. I'm really excited about it for a number of reasons. Um, of the four Gospels, I've spent the least amount of time in John's Gospel. I preached through Matthew maybe 10 years ago, or Mark rather, 10 years ago. Ma most of Matthew over the last uh, few years. But I've never preached through John's Gospel, and there's so much obviously rich content there. I can't wait to get into that. It's going to be called Signs, a new series called Signs, which will begin again uh, next week. Um, but this morning, I want to talk about a single resolution, so to speak, that brings with it something no other resolution brings, and that's unlimited power. Because it's a resolution that's actually backed by the one who has no limit to his power. And I'm talking about the resolution to pray more fervently more regularly, more desperately than ever before. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. And I'm not just going to tell you you need to pray more. We, we know that already, right? I want to hopefully, I want to show you something of the love of God and the power of God, which I believe will stir within us a greater desire to pray. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to James chapter 5. Uh, we're going to cover verses 13 through 18. I'm just going to read the whole section uh, this is written by James, of course, who was the brother of Jesus, to a group of suffering, scattered, exhausted Christians. And here's what he says. This is the Word of God. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous, man, a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, I want you to notice right away, it's not just those who are suffering that James calls to pray. He does call those who are suffering to pray, but he also calls those who are cheerful. If you have an NIV, it says those who are happy. He calls those to sing praise to God. The Greek uh, word translated sing praise is the word salo, which is a word from which we get uh, the psalms. And it appears here in the active, uh, present active tense as if to say, let the word of praise be continually on your lips, always. Sing praises to God, your Redeemer. In fact, that's really what worship is. It is a continual response to the Lord's gracious provision for us. And he's provided so much, hasn't he? He's given us life. He's given us health, uh, family, and friends. He's given us a church family. He's forgiven us of our sins. He's given us Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. He's brought us into a restored relationship with Him. In fact, earlier in the same uh, letter, James 1.18 says, He has of His own will brought us forth by the word of truth. He's given us new life in Christ through the word of truth, which is the gospel. So God's given us all these things, spiritual and material and familial and all these things. And along with these other elements, sometimes... Not all the time, but sometimes God gives us these moments of completely undistracted happiness, joy, 
where we, we, we can feel it. There's an emotional, spiritual, relational sort of ease or release or calmness, and we feel this sort of joy. These are times, James says, that we are to draw near to him in praise. Now, why would James remind these people to sing when they're cheerful? I mean, isn't that when you always sing? Isn't that when we're most inclined to sing when we're happy? I have to confess to you, I, I find myself singing all the time. Seriously, I sing all the time. I sing in the shower. I sing in my office. I sing with my kids. I sing in the car. I almost got caught the other day belting out a Celine Dion song while I was driving. Now, this is a sure way for a man to lose his reputation. Um, and I wasn't, of course, I wasn't planning on it. I was just hitting the, the seat button. And the next thing I know, I'd stumbled across a song that I'd turned it into a duet, Celine and I. And, uh, and I guess, it, to be candid, I was hitting some of those high notes that Celine just can't get to. But I'm singing this song. And, you know, unfortunately, no one... Because my windows were, no one knew what I was singing to. Um, but we're inclined to sing when we're happy, when we're joyful, when things are going really well for us. Why would James instruct us to sing then? Well, New Testament scholar Douglas Moo answers it this way. He says, a reminder to turn to God is needed even more in times of cheer than in times of suffering. And isn't that true? You know, things are going really well, things are humming along, and we're just enjoying life, and, and everything is clicking at our job and in our home. We're actually a lot less inclined to go to the Lord in prayer or even praise. But when we're thrown a curve and we don't know what to do, when we have a sickness that won't go away, when we're hit with a crisis, right, when we're persecuted or someone is against us, when we don't have enough money to pay the bills, that's when we... We tend to go to prayer, but it's not nearly as often when things are really going smoothly. There's a, uh, a great passage in the Old Testament which talks about this is when kind of David and Saul are in their battle. And, and uh, the, the army says that, um, that Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Well, I once heard a Christian counselor say that, that uh, failure has slain its thousands, but success its tens of thousands. In other words, when things are going so well, we become, we, we no longer realize just how desperately we need God. And so, James says, when you're suffering, pray. When you're cheerful, go to the Lord and worship. And what James is doing here by offering these two sort of extremes, suffering and cheerfulness, he's making this point as our first point this morning. The Christian life is a praying life. One in which all situations are met by turning to God. When things are going poorly and we can't seem to do anything right and things in our marriage are strained and our families are rough and things at our job are not going well, we turn to God in prayer. Likewise, again, when things are going seamlessly and things seem to be going perfectly well, we turn to God in praise. Why? Because God desires that kind of relationship with us. One in which we come to him and turn to him always. In the highs and lows, in the good and bad. See, our God is a consuming fire, but he's also a gentle and caring father. When Jesus instructed his disciples to pray, he said, begin with this address, our father in heaven. He's our father in heaven because he's come near to his children by his grace. 
and establishing through this Redeemer a covenant relationship of intimacy and communion. He's the perfect father, actually. One who cares for his children in ways that we can never completely imitate. One whose love exceeds the love of any earthly father. And if you have a father, if you have a great earthly father, maybe you think, I don't know, it's hard for me to even understand. How could God love me that way? Even more than my earthly father. And maybe you have a father who wasn't so great, who, was not, who abandoned you, who didn't love you, who criticized you constantly, who was not there for you. Then it may be hard for you to actually accept. Can I really be loved that way? But in, in, in a, our heavenly father, we have a love, a father who loves us with a desire for relationship and an intimate, a close relationship, regular communion. In fact, a God who wants to, us to come to him with everything. It's an incredible thing, isn't it, really, that the God of the universe actually desires to have an audience with us. The God who made the, the world and everything in it actually wants to have fellowship with us. He cherishes that relationship with us. And, and the real us, not just some pretend us, not the sort of just the up and spiritually on fire us, but also the beaten down, all over the place, fickle, unreliable, self-centered, real us. He wants us to come to him like we are, not all dressed up, so to speak. I had a man come to me several years ago after a service and he was struggling with same-sex attraction and kept falling into temptation. And it was just killing him inside. I mean, he was just so eaten up inside. And I asked him, I said, how open with the Lord have you been about this? I mean, have you really been sharing your struggles with the Lord? Have you, have you been open with him? He said, I don't feel like I can go to the Lord until I get this resolved. I'm too ashamed. I said, I said to him, actually, this is precisely how and when God wants you to come to him. When you are broken, when you are guilty, when you don't feel like you deserve to be in his presence, that's when God desires us to come to him. I love what Paul Miller says in his book on prayer. He writes, the only way to come to God is by taking off any spiritual mask. The real you has to meet the real God. He is a person. Come overwhelmed with life. Come with a wandering mind. Come messy. When we're suffering and we're at our wits end and we don't know where to turn, we go to the Lord in prayer. And when things are going well and we feel like we're independently strong, which we're really never, we really never are, but we feel like we're strong, we go to the Lord in prayer and worship and praise. We come to him in all circumstances and situations. Now look at verses 14 and 15 again. James says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. So, first James emphasizes the importance of individuals coming to God in all circumstances. For those who are sick, he says, perhaps too weary to pray for themselves, those who are beaten down, overwhelmed with illness, he calls them to actually call upon the elders of the church to gather and pray for them. So one of the things the elders do, the elders are called to 
We looked at this, I don't know what, a couple of months ago or three months ago, how the elders shepherd the church under the chief shepherd, who is Jesus Christ. Well, one of the ways that the elders care for the church is they pray for those in the church. And sometimes as they gather together in their meetings, they pray and they, they bring those individual requests before the Lord. And at other times, upon request, the elders actually gather around those who are sick and pray for them and anoint them with oil. This is something your elders will do. The responsibility, of course, is on the sick person to, to let the elders know uh, that they're sick. James says, let the sick person call for the elders. But this is something that the elders will delight in doing, particularly in the case of a relentless and debilitating illness. This is an ancient practice which God ordained that was given to the leaders in the church in perpetuity and never canceled anywhere in Scripture. So we're going to do it. Now, it is admittedly different. Uh, there aren't any other scenarios in which a group of men gather around a person and put their hands on that person's shoulder and put oil on the person's face. So I know it's a little different. And um, you might ask the question, what's the deal with the oil? Well, the oil is symbolic. Throughout the scriptures, God's people are set apart unto God for certain tasks, tasks or roles or situations. And when that happens, they are sometimes anointed with oil. In the Old Testament, kings are anointed as a sign that they've been set apart for God's special purpose and use. Uh, when Aaron and his sons were called to be priests, we're told this in Exodus 28, and you shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with him and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. So the oil that the elders place on the head of the sick is nothing more than a symbol that this person has actually been set apart. It's almost like, if you can imagine, uh, putting a spotlight on that person. We're setting that person apart, setting that person apart for God's special attention, so to speak. And it's also a way to sort of stimulate, a tactile way to stimulate that person's uh, faith. Now, the oil doesn't heal anyone, right? It's not magical oil. I have uh, in my office the, a container that I use when, when I've done this before in the past, and uh, there's, there's nothing magical or mystical about the oil. It's just normal oil. Um, and certainly our prayers don't need oil to make them effective. There are plenty of places in Scripture where a sick person is prayed for without the anointing of oil, and God brings about healing. But this is a practice that God has ordained and one through which he brings healing. He, nevertheless, though, it's not one that a lot of people have participated in. Uh, and so it may be unusual. I want to share with you, uh, just to be candid, I actually, I had this in my notes. I took it out. I put it back in. I took it out. I put it back in. But I thought this is too important. I want to share with you the personal testimony of one very well-respected theologian. And this is a very conservative theologian who journaled about his first experience with this practice. Here's what he wrote. I don't have this on the screen. It's too long of a, uh, an excerpt. But he says this. During one autumn, many years ago, a friend of mine suffered a viral infection of the heart. While it was not a heart attack, it mimicked many of the symptoms of one. My friend felt listless. He looked gray and lifeless. After two weeks, he called the elders to lay hands on him and pray. No one in our church had ever done this before, so we did something very compassionate. We studied the matter another six weeks and hoped that he didn't die in the meantime. 
At last, we appointed a night for prayer and the elders gathered. Before we prayed, our pastor told us not to expect any dramatic physical healing, since God heals in many ways. And while I appreciated his motive, this guy writes, there was no need to restrain my enthusiasm. My doubting heart was already skeptical enough. My friend knelt down in the middle of the circle of the elders. We anointed him with oil. We laid hands on him and began to pray. As soon as we began to pray, I had an overwhelming sense that God was at that moment healing my friend. My arms felt what I can only describe as bolts of fire pulsing through them. As I grasped my friend's shoulder, heat and energy burned my hand. I felt that one of my, with one hand I could lift all 230 pounds of him to the ceiling or push him through the floor. I knew God was healing him. I was too astonished, too unsure of what I was experiencing to tell anyone. For four days, I kept my experience to myself. Four days later after church, my friend beckoned to me with a wild grin. He said, watch this. At once, he dashed up a flight of steps. I met him at the top. He smiled. He said, I'm not even breathing hard. I knew it, I exclaimed, and told him what I'd felt a few nights earlier. Since that day, I've joined with elders to lay hands on the sick and pray for them. I've never again felt that fire. And while I occasionally feel a flood of emotion... I've learned that my feelings and God's healing may have no connection. A small number of us have experienced in, in immediate healing from a serious illness. More have recovered gradually and under the care of physicians. Many have found spiritual healing, great peace and spiritual renewal in the time of crisis and suffering, whether they recovered physically or not. And some have apparently gained no physical or spiritual benefit at all. Now, this is not... This is not some emotional, unstable, emotionally unstable guy. Again, this is a buttoned-down, conservative, well-respected theologian. Now, here's why I read that to you. There are a lot of charlatans out there, a lot of false prophets, false teachers, whipping people with their coats, pushing people to the ground while invoking the name of Jesus. There are a lot of people who have built multi-million dollar empires and travel in Lear jets promising that God will bring healing if they only surrender to the, these evangelists all of their money. Well, this is disgusting. This is disgusting. This is an aberrant behavior that does not honor God. However, we should not conclude on the basis of a few deceivers that God doesn't heal through prayer. Nor should we believe, because of the abuse by some con artists, that God doesn't heal through the gathering and laying on of hands by the elders. Now here's the second point I want to make. God answers prayer in the manner and at the time he desires. He simply calls us to humbly trust him. The testimony that I read to you, I've experienced similar things. Not exactly the same thing. I have gathered with elders and, and anointed someone's head with oil and led the elders through prayer. And I've seen God work in a swift and powerful way. I've also done this, gathered with, around the sick with elders at their request, anointed their head with oil, and seen what I believe to be nothing happen, at least immediately. There was a young man once... Uh, whose mom and dad reached out to us as elders, and he experienced headaches, constant headaches. He could not get rid of these headaches and fatigue. And he was only 14, 15 years old, and we gathered around him as elders, and we, we anointed his head with oil, and we pleaded with God to do a work. 
And as far as I know, I don't know if the headaches ever relented. The, last, the next few times I talked to him, he still had headaches. Sometimes God heals immediately. At other times, it's through the medical attention uh, that a sick person receives, which we as elders will never, ever discourage, right? We're never going to tell somebody, don't go to the doctor, just, you know, do this instead. At other times, God seems, some, sometimes God works immediately. Sometimes it seems like God is not working at all. We don't know what God is doing behind the scenes. What do we do? We confess that God answers prayers. We believe that. We have to begin with that. But there are times and scenarios when what we're asking for simply doesn't fit with God's will. And in those times, God in his wisdom will answer prayer, but it's by giving something even better than we're asking for. Something we may, may not understand, something that we cannot fully grasp, but we dare not conclude in those occasions that God does not answer prayer. God answers prayer. I just read from James. He makes it very clear. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And I love the language of this verse. The prayer will save him, but the Lord will raise him up. The Lord is the one who saves, but he does so through prayer. Prayer is the means and the means actually matter. Without prayer, the Lord may not heal. Now there's also a connection between prayer and the confession Look at, verses six, look at the first part of verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And when we suffer, this is what I call moralizing suffer. I'm sure someone else has called it that before me. But when we suffer, we almost always tend to think, if it's a prolonged suffering, what have I done wrong? Right? You know, what have I done that I may not even realize? What have I done wrong? And, we're, and when we're really sick for a long period of time, we're inclined to worry, do I have some secret sin in my life that I haven't confessed? Well, this is really not a biblical way to begin, okay? What happened on the cross was God put the ledgers away. He settled all the accounts. When Jesus died on the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous, he severed the link between suffering and deserving once for all. Which means that if you are in Christ, even when you're suffering, you never have to wonder, is God out to get me? He's not. You never have to wonder, is God trying to punish me? Is God trying to, to uh, bring me down? You never have to worry that because he's not. We suffer and get sick because we live in a sin-cursed world. And yet God is sovereignly working through our suffering to bring us close to him, to keep us close to him. So to conclude that sickness is a result of some personal sin in our lives is, first of all, bad theology, but it's also very dangerous. Jesus was quick to correct that notion in his day, wasn't he? When someone asked him about a blind man who'd sinned, who, who, why is this blind man sinned? Because of his sin or his parents' sin? Jesus said, no, that's not how it works. So here's, here's what I believe James is saying in this verse. When we get sick... God doesn't call us to endlessly search our souls for some unknown sin. However, there may be occasions when we are clinging to unconfessed sin that we know about and refuse to repent of, and that sin has brought with it sickness, both as a natural consequence and possibly part of God's discipline. 
And in that case, we need to confess, repent, and be reconciled. Now here's what one New Testament scholar, uh, Craig Blomberg, says. He says, God intends prayer to bring the body together so that when one person falls ill, physically or spiritually, others in the community may intervene redemptively. Likewise, confession is not merely a mental activity as we talk to God in our individual prayer times. Certainly it is that. But also a corporate activity that involves the people we have hurt or offended. Whether to bring humility and unity to a body of believers or to effect reconciliation between estranged parties, God clearly intended confession to be as much a part of life together as prayer. So one of the things I said in our most recent staff meeting is I said, one of the things that we're going to incorporate as a regular, and, and, and the rest of the pastors and directors and staff were enthused about this, one of the things we're going to incorporate is in our worship gatherings, a regular rhythm of confession. So we're going to have prayers of confession, prayers of assurance, prayers for deliverance, prayers for hope, different prayers that we see coming out of the scriptures that we're going to recite together. All right, so let's look at the last part of verse 16. The prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. Who is the righteous man? Who is the righteous person? Is it the one who is especially obedient? Is it the one who is known to be better behaved than everyone else? Is it the really good person or the so-called mature person? No, the righteous person is the one who is trusting in Christ alone for salvation. Not the best behaved person in the church. This is why, by the way, James brings up Elijah in verses 17 and 18. It talks about Elijah's effectiveness in prayer. He prayed in the rain stop, while also pointing out that Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. Elijah was fickle. Elijah was a sinful person. Elijah was up and down. Elijah had doubts. Elijah was not perfect. His righteousness was credited to him just like ours. He was believing in, he was trusting in the promised Redeemer, though he knew less about the Redeemer than we know. Here's our final point this morning. The righteousness we need to approach God is not something we possess or could earn, but is ours by faith in Christ. This is James's way of obliterating the sort of moralistic notion that only good people can go to God and get their prayers answered. God answers our prayers because He is good, not because we are. God answers our prayer because He is faithful. He is the faithful one. We're not faithful. He answers our prayers because He is gracious and generous, not because we are reliable and trustworthy. Because the Scriptures tell us there's no one good. There's no one deserving. There's no one who has ever done enough, as I said in memorial service just yesterday afternoon. There's no one who's ever done enough by which they could come before the Lord and say, God, here it is. This is from me. Forgive me. It's only ours by faith, forgiveness. Righteousness is only ours by faith. For those who have come to God in faith, Ending their own self-reliance, their own self-salvation projects, God forgives and listens in Christ. 
fact, James says that the prayer of the righteous has great power as it's working. It's easy for us, those of us who have a high view of God's sovereignty, uh, for us to conclude that, that prayer is not really that effective. We say things like, well, the point of prayer is that we are changed. And we don't go to God to tell him our will. We go to discover his will. And okay, there's, look, there's some truth in that, right? There's a modicum of truth in that. But those sort of notions miss out on something very important that runs throughout all of Scripture, and that is, it is through prayer that God makes things happen for our good. So, it's not just busy work. We don't just change for our, we don't pray just for our sake. No, no certainly we do change as we pray. We're reminded of our own inability. We're reminded of our own fruitlessness in terms of trying to accomplish things on our own. So we are changed. But we don't want to dare make it just about that. It's through prayer that God makes things happen for our good. Now certainly God is sovereign. But he's sovereign not just over the end. He's sovereign over the means. And he has determined by his infinite wisdom to give us what we need in response to our prayers. Do you realize, and this, this, and this is how, you know, when you, I spend usually Wednesdays and Thursdays working on sermon prep, but sometimes on Friday or Saturday, God will apply it to my own heart in a different way. And this is a realization that I came to about 10:15 last night. And that is sometimes we go without the good things we desire because we don't pray. And here's how the Lord brought this to me specifically. I thought to myself, could it be that the changes in the hearts of our friends and the people around us and of our own children, they're not taking place because we're not fervently praying for those hearts to change? Could it be that our situation at home hasn't changed because we haven't prayed desperately about it? Could it be that we're going without what we need because we haven't even asked God for it? This is what James says uh, just a little bit earlier in the same book. He says this in James 4. You do not have because you don't ask. This is why you don't have what you need because you actually haven't gone to the Lord and asked for it. If you would only ask for it, you might actually have what, it, what, it, what you need. You haven't seen this transformation. You haven't seen this revival. You haven't seen God make his inroads into the nations because you haven't asked him to do so. And if you do... You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Where there's prayer, there's healing. Where there's no prayer, there may be no healing. Where there's prayer, there's power, unlimited power. Where there's no prayer, there may not be any power. Not because God is rendered powerless, God can do and does anything he wants to do. But we might say it this way, when there's no prayer, God's preferred means of deliverance is eliminated. So one motivation to pray is that we will not have the things we need unless we pray. Because God has purposed to provide for us through our prayers. But I think the greatest and most lasting motivation to pray is because as the one who loves us, God delights in hearing us. He delights in being with us in that intimate communion of prayer. He delights in listening to us. He thinks about us all the time and cherishes those exchanges. 
Let me illustrate it this way in closing. When I was a teenager, I had a friend who lived a couple of houses down from me. Uh, his name was Eric McKinney. You don't know him. Um, but he was three years older than I was, and we hung out all the time. Played basketball together, played baseball together. Uh, we would have one-on-one -on -one wiffle ball tournaments, you know, in his backyard. We were together all the time. He was three years older than I was, so by the time I was 16, Eric was already 19. He had graduated from high school and decided not to go to college, but instead he was working full-time as an architect's apprentice. So he was studying, I think they called it drafting, studying in this field of drafting under, under uh, another person. And because Eric lived at home and was working full-time, he was just loaded with cash, at least from a teenager's perspective. And so on my 16th birthday, Eric bought me a vintage, multicolored, embroidered Adidas long-sleeve shirt it was the nicest piece of clothing I'd ever seen, let alone owned. I mean, it was the nicest thing I'd ever even seen. Must have cost $60, which is a lot to spend on a church today, but back in 1987, it was like a small fortune. Well, I love that shirt so much that I didn't even want to wear it. I pushed all my other clothes to one side in the closet, and I just left my Adidas shirt on one side alone. I'd get up in the middle of the night and check on it. Make sure that it had ample breathing space. That's how much I thought about this shirt all the time. I was always thinking about this shirt. I didn't even want to wear it. Occasionally, I would break it out for a special occasion, like going to the mall on Friday night with my friends. But as soon as I got home, before I you know, did anything else, I was quick to take off that shirt and put on a different shirt. That's how much, as an immature, misguided teenager, I thought about a shirt. A shirt. It was always in the back of my mind. Think about how much our perfect Heavenly Father thinks about His own children who He's purchased at a great cost. He thinks about them constantly. He cares about every single detail of your life. If you are in Christ, God is concerned about every single struggle you have, every anxious thought, Every fleeting fear, every challenge, every up, every down, God is concerned about every single part of it. And it is His delight to hear you and to listen to you and to come to your rescue when you ask Him to. It's His delight. Not because we've earned His response, not because we've earned good things from Him, but because this is how good He is. He is good. He is, his mercies are new every morning. His goodness is everlasting. His love never fails. Jesus uses the analogy this way to the religious leaders. He says, if you being evil parents, you being evil people, want to give the best to your children, then how much more your heavenly father who is perfect desires to give good things to his children. The God of creation has moved heaven and earth to be with you. The God of creation has surrendered His own Son so that you and I could come directly to Him without any distractions or any impediments. He invites us into His presence where He promises to hear us and to satisfy our hearts with good things. We can even say He is waiting for us even now. Let's pray.